developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 367, Things Past. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we link our subconscious with yours in order to dig deep into the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, Things Past, the one where Odo links his subconscious with his friends in order to dig deep... Wait, Norman, did... Hey, did, did you just say something like that? Oh, did I? Well, yeah. Well, I was just planting the idea in your head. It's, it's for you to figure out what it means. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, all right. While I sit over here and get lost in the dark chasms of my own psyche, uh, that should be just enough time for you to tell people how to contact us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, after rummaging through many things from the past, it's time for the trivia on Things Past. Well, thank you. Today's episode was written by Michael Taylor. So imagine this. You're in New York. You're really trying to make it as a musician. But then you dabble in writing. So you send in a spec script that gets turned into one of the most beloved episodes of a series. That was Michael Taylor when he wrote the pitch for The Visitor on DS9. Here we are a bit later, and he pitches a story to the producers about our DS9 characters being trapped in each other's dreams. Well, it was closer to an Inception-style story, where the characters wake up from a dream, only to find that they are now in someone else's dream, and so on and so on. The producers really liked it, but then they asked him to make it darker and grittier. So he did. Now, what the producers liked was partly the idea of returning to Tarek Noor, but without doing a time travel story or a holodeck simulation or some other oft-used Trek trope. So this kind of gave them the excuse they were looking for. But it wasn't just Michael's story. As you can imagine, you have a big staff of writers and producers at DS9. You had the stalwarts like Ronald D. Moore really putting their stamp on the final product. 
it was Ron who made the focus on Odo's past. Then we have uh, the director here, LeVar Burton. No introduction necessary uh, for the TNG veteran and longtime graduate of the Star Trek directing school. He was pleased to do this gritty episode of DS9 and even called it Nightmare on Odo Street. Now, I was very happy to read in Terry J. Erdman's book, Hey Terry, that LeVar Burton loves to do practical effects. So if it can be done on stage, on camera, and without the use of digital or post-production effects, he will always lean that way. You can spot a few moments like that in the final show. Heavy use of fog or lighting effects to distract the audience, then lead us to a reveal. Let's talk about guest stars. Well, we welcome back, as always, recurring guest stars Andrew Robinson and Mark Alimo in prominent position here. On Tarek Noor, we encounter some new faces as well, like the Bajoran Belar, played by Victor Bivine. Now, Victor started in film and TV in the 1970s and made the usual stops in guest star roles along the way, like on Chips, The Equalizer, NYPD Blue, and Moonlighting. He made the transition to producer and writer, though, and even cranked out a show for MTV, The Ultimate Parkour Challenge. We've seen Victor once before in the movie First Contact as a Starfleet guard on the Enterprise, and we will catch him again on Voyager and on Enterprise. He also lends his voice to the Trek video game Hidden Evil. We also meet the Cardassian Thrax, played by longtime genre film favorite and returning Trek guest Kurtwood Smith. He's usually a guy playing authority roles, probably because he does it so well. Where do you even start? Of course, he turns up in shows like The X-Files and 24 and Agent Carter, but he even appeared in Tim and Eric Bedtime Stories and lent his voice to an episode of Rick and Morty. He can do it all. He may be most recognizable from feature films like Robocop, Deep Impact, and Broken Arrow, but yes, We've seen him in Trek before, too, as the president of the Federation in Star Trek VI, and we will catch up with Kurtwood one more time in Voyager in an epic two-parter. Just to save you a couple of emails, John, I just want to make sure that we are not remiss in saying that he was also read in that 70s show. uh, (laughs) Yes, he was, because, again, he can do it all. Taragnor is a horrifying hellscape under fascist Cardassian rule, but it had some great mood lighting. Am I right? Prologue. On a runabout headed home to Deep Space Nine from a Bajoran historical conference, Captain Sisko, Dax, Odo, and Garrick are discussing the different and controversial perspectives following the conference's topic, the Cardassian military occupation of Bajor. An irate Garrick thought that the Bajorans would have appreciated his dispassionate dissertation on the occupation, but Dax and Sisko saw it differently and in full support of the Bajoran perspective. However, it seems that Odo was the man of the hour, hailed by many Bajorans at the conference as being the bastion of law and justice. Noticeably uncomfortable with such a legacy, Odo dismisses such praise as being unworthy of him. As the runabout approaches Deep Space Nine, a Bajoran ops officer informs Worf that the runabout is on autopilot and that all on board are registering minimal life signs. Worf and Dr. Bashir beam on board the runabout and discover that all on board are suffering some type of stasis and are barely alive. As Dr. Bashir and Worf are baffled with the current plight of their friends, 
Captain Sisko suddenly wakes and finds himself on a much darker and sinister version of the station's promenade, now littered with impoverished Bajorans and crawling with armed Cardassian soldiers. Act 1. Sisko isn't the only one who finds himself disoriented and discombobulated, as a Bajoran stranger helps him, Dax, Odo, and Garrick to their feet, so that they don't draw the attention and ire of Cardassian security. Meanwhile, in the infirmary, Dr. Bashir and Worf are still puzzled as to what may have caused their four friends to be incapacitated, as they all lay perfectly still and are barely alive on their sickbay beds. Their only clue is that a fairly innocuous Class II plasma storm struck the runabout in a way that caused this extremely uncommon physical reaction to which Dr. Bashir sets to researching to save his friends. Finding a more secluded area to gather their wits, Sisko surmises that they are on Terak Nor during the era of the Cardassian occupation, but all are puzzled as to why each of them can recognize each other, but are not standing out in the crowd as obviously a human, Cardassian, and Trill should. Exhausting all speculation ranging from a holodeck accident to a cross-dimensional transfer, one thing is they all agree on. They all have to get off the station before they are interrogated. Dax notices Goldicott and his cadre of officers standing atop the upper promenade and ushers all of them to move on, but not before Odo is struck still by the sight of something, someone familiar. As they continue to piece together the details of their situation, Odo identifies one of Dakot's officers as Thrax, the head of security and Odo's predecessor from nine years ago. And, before they can blend into the mass population, a Cardassian security team engages them and arrests Dax, who they see as a Bajoran woman. Garrick tries to bribe the security guards, but his efforts are met with a quick strike to the face, drawing blood, which trickles down Garrick's face not only in this reality, but also as Garrick lies comatose in sickbay as Worf calls over Dr. Bashir, as they are both observe what's happening with grave concern. Act 2. Trying to discover the cause for Garrick's sudden nosebleed, Dr. Bashir informs Worf that Garrick and the others may be under some type of psychosomatic stress as a result of the incident on the runabout, but he just doesn't know. Back on Tarek Nor, Sisko, Garrick, and Odo have been relocated, but not before Garrick was able to pickpocket the comp link from the guard that struck him earlier. Using the device to discover who they are in this timeline, all of them are unremarkable Bajoran men from the Rakata province, Ishan Che, Jalor Goita, and, finishing Garrick's sentence, Odo says he is Tamor Landi, which surprises everyone as to why Odo would know this specific name. But before Odo can make any sense of these identities, Quark appears and pulls them out of their holding area as he needs fresh Bajoran labor to work the bar. But trying to find the latinum lining in any situation, both Sisko and Odo wonder how badly the timeline would be affected if Quark were to suffer some strange accident during their employment. Meanwhile, Dax is escorted into Goldicott's quarters, assuming the name Lita. Goldicott has her poor two servings of Kanar and confesses to Lita that his position and his station as governor of Terak Nor is misunderstood and lonely, and he just wants some companionship, a friend to understand his complicated yet fair disposition. At Quark's, as their hands are filled with the refuse and scraps of meal trays, Garrick is lamenting the fact that the Cardassians were extremely messy conquerors, and such hard labor was befitting of the Bajorans' more servile nature. As Odo busses his tray towards the bar, he sees three Bajoran men, one of which he believed to have seen before. 
Odo is able to pull a little more truth from Odo, who remembers that the three Bajorans who they appear to be were innocent men who were publicly executed after a failed attempt on Goldicott's life, a fate that Sisko, Odo, and Garrick will soon share if they cannot get off the station. Act 3. As Sisko, Odo, and Garrick keep their heads down trying to plan their escape, Thrax pays Quark a visit regarding rumors about moving illegal Miragi crystals. But just to keep Wark honest about his business dealings, Thrax threatens to bring in the Obsidian Order just to make sure Quark's bookkeeping is on the honest side. Overhearing Thrax's conversation, Garrick discovers an odd discrepancy. Seven years ago, Thrax wasn't supposed to be security chief of Terraknor. Odo was. However interesting this all may be, Sisko refocuses his team on making contact with the Bajoran resistance by using a signaling method that Kira told him about. Returning nonchalantly back to their holding area, Sisko walks by some pottery and turns over a specific vase, as he and his conspirators sit to have some soup, waiting for their resistance contact. Shortly after, Goldacott, with Dax, as Lita, by his side, strolls the promenade to survey his domain, as Garrick seethes with venom watching Dacott's pompous arrogance. Returning to his soup, Odo is briefly startled looking down at his hands which are covered in blood. But again, before he can start to piece together what is happening to him, the same stranger who helped them earlier when they arrived on Terraknor sits with them. He is a member of the Bajoran Resistance who has answered Sisko's signal and is not just there for the soup. Cutting to the chase, Sisko tells him that they have an urgent need to get off the station. But before they can finalize their escape plans, the promenade is rocked by an explosion, and through the smoke and chaos, Sisko sees both Dakot and Dax sprawled across the floor. Rushing to her side, Sisko is waylaid by Cardassian guards as he, Garrick, and Odo are rounded up and taken into custody. Act 4 Locked up behind a prison cell force field, adjacent to several other packed cells of Bajoran prisoners, Garrick's gallows humor is in full effect, not so much for being incarcerated, but not for being treated with the respect of befitting his alleged crime, the attempted assassination of a Cardassian gull. Suddenly Thrax appears, as Sisko, Odo, and Garrick watch his efficiency at work as he delivers judgment and sentencing to all Bajorans in his holding cells. Men, women, children, in fact whole families alike. When he finally appears before Sisko, Odo, and Garrick, he lays out the collected details and evidence of their crime, all of which appear to be circumstantial, at least in Odo's estimation. With every counter to each allegation, Odo is challenging and begging Thrax to look at the evidence with greater detail and certainty, such as the chemical traces of TNC, which are both used in plasma grenades and cleaning agents, like the ones they used while working at Quark's. There even seems to be a brief moment when Odo seems to be reaching Thrax, as one lawman to another. But Thrax is determined to make his conviction stick, and leaves to prepare his special tribunal for sentencing, with Odo pleading to talk to him all the while. Meanwhile, in Goldicott's chambers, both he and Lita are none the worse for wear after this attempt the fourth in a line of assassination attempts on his life. And as Goldicott prattles on and on about how he feels responsible for poorly parenting his Bajoran children, Dax, who has played her part perfectly, attacks Dacott when his back is turned, knocks him unconscious, and accesses his computer. Back in the brig, as Garrick hones one of his many explanations to try and persuade his way out of their predicament, Sisko redirects their attention back to Thrax, wondering why he is there as security chief instead of Odo. Odo becomes increasingly defensive as Sisko presses him for any detail about why Odo and Thrax seem to be connected. 
But once again, as Odo tries to recollect any memories that may be of use, he is interrupted as Dax burns a hole in the holding cell back wall, much to the surprise of its residents. Do they not know a jailbreak when they see one? Fleeing through a corridor towards Goldicott's personal shuttle, Sisko and his team are attacked by Thrax in a security detail. Dax is injured. Garrick shoots down Odo's assailant, and Captain Sisko manages to hold Thrax at bay until, to the shock of all watching, he turns into a shimmering gelatinous form and escapes through an air vent. Thrax is a changeling. And to make matters even worse, as soon as they reach the shuttle bay, they find themselves right back in the brig, with two hours left before their execution. Act 5. Bewildered beyond understanding, Sisko, Dax, Garrick, and a more noticeably irritable Odo cannot make sense of anything that is happening. Being back in a holding cell, but more puzzling, the changeling on the station before Odo arrived on Terraknor. Sisko wants answers, and he wants to know why all roads lead back to Odo. Once again, before Odo can address what is happening, Thrax appears and escorts Odo to a private meeting. But when Thrax confronts Odo about how nothing matters in the pursuit of justice except for cold, hard convictions, Odo confesses he's not Bajoran and he's not even supposed to be there, which Thrax admits he knows and calls out Odo by name, to which all of this supposed reality comes crashing down on Odo as he finally remembers exactly what happened seven years ago on the promenade. As Sisko, Dax, and Garrick revert back into their normal appearances, they, along with Odo, observe the executions as Odo explains that he sentenced three innocent men to die. For seven years, he has lived with the guilt of these murders and is now atoning for them by revealing his private shame and in doing so, releases all of them from their catatonic states and back to their own reality. Dr. Bashir informs Odo that the common plasma storm that impacted the runabout activated certain morphogenic enzymes in Odo's brain and created a temporary great link with all in his vicinity, namely Sisko, Garrick, and Dax. And since Odo was suffering from the guilt of his past sins after leaving the Bajoran conference, those memories became the reality for all of those involved during that anomalous great link. They all saw Odo's hidden pain, his shame, and now that the truth has been revealed to all in his official report, a report that Major Kira has read and has tried to come to terms with in the last few days since Odo's recovery, she is devastated that the one man who she thought was special, the one man who she thought stood for justice, is now, as Odo completes her thought, another imperfect solid. She asks him if there were more innocents who died at the hands of Odo's vaunted justice, to which Odo could only reply, I'm not sure. I hope so. The end. Little uh, bonus appearance by Scotty. Aye. Uh, no, you, you, it's a jailbreak. Yeah, you, 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 <laughs> you cross the timelines because uh, Star Trek does that. So I'm allowed to go backwards according to our rules and not forwards. Correct. That is but, correct. Yes. That is the mission log rule that never ever ever gets broken except for all the times that we have had to uh, answer to the temporal investigators i will accept any penalty as long as i can meet captain kirk just once <laughs> you gotta have have him sign your pad yeah that's right that's, that's good right. hey that opening scene garrick they're drinking the i assume tarkalian tea i assume that's what he was having there I, I wish we had gotten everything that led up to that moment. Like, I can only imagine mm -hmm. what Garrick's speech was like. like the, the fact that they literally handed him a tag that said, Elam <laughs> Garrick, former Cardassian oppressor. 
Like, like I you would laughed. need, like, in a convention full of Bajorans, you would need to single out the Cardassian as saying, oh, no, no, he was an oppressor. Like, really? <laughs> I want to see who has the guts who's going to do that in a cosplay. Like, you know, cosplay as Garrick, but cosplay with that hello, my name is yes. tag. Yes. Oh, I want that. <laughs> That's that's so seriously, good. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, think about it. I mean, it's like Garrick. I mean, he knows what he was going to. Obviously, you know, he like they said he chose to go. Yes. And then he comes away with it, saying, "Boy, they treated me like a jerk." <laughs> well, what did you expect? <laughs> right. You know. I, I'll bring that up again in the next segment because I, right. I, I think it's worth talking about it with some seriousness. But it, it is such a funny moment and, and just so perfect for Garrick. Hey, at the beginning of the episode, Worf is in command at Ops, uh, just right there, j- just fully present, fully in command. And, and I was just hoping and I'm glad that he didn't give a heartfelt speech about protecting humans and then throw a guy across the room because that would have ruined the moment for me. But mm. good for him. He didn't do it. And I just have to say that for the whole episode, I love when they redress DS9 as Tarek Noor. Like it, mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful and impressive set anyway, and then it lends itself to that reuse when you, when you turn it into something dingy and scary. And yeah, uh, just well done. You know, in a previous episode, um, somebody called out me saying Tarek Noor, Tarek Noir. And maybe mm. that's why. Yeah. I think it's just subliminal because it is. It feels very L.A. confidential dark. Exactly. It feels like film noir. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they are, uh, I have to say, I was really getting into the dark and dinginess and the grittiness of that look right up until I saw that Bajoran contact because I'll tell you what, that dude's hair was fabulous. <laughs> right. <laughs> he and like, has and got it going on. Yeah. I'm just saying, if you want to blend in, you might not want to have such perfect hair. Just saying. When everyone else is dressed in rags. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> very true. Yeah. Uh, well, he was on his way to Trader Vic's. His, his hair had to be perfect. So, yeah. Um, I, I like the use of uh, as soon as they, they realize where they are and they don't know why they're there, that Cisco says computer and program. And truly, that is the phrase that all of us have tried to use at some point or another. I mean, in the 24th century, I'm thinking it should just be a standard thing that when you enter a room anywhere, doing anything, you should just start with that to make sure that you're not at a holodeck simulation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and poor Dax, poor Dax, uh, when they're trying to figure out where they are and what's happening, and she goes, well, some kind of cross-dimensional transfer. Our our conscious minds might have been moved through time and space, but, but that's just a guess. That, that This is the first thing off the top of my head. You know, a, as you do, you just might come to that uh, a, a, as a guess right away. I mean, it, it sort of it reminded me there's this episode of, um, I, I mean, I, I laughed when I saw it like in the 80s. There's an episode of Lost in Space where uh, uh, Professor Robinson is is there with maybe he's with Don West and they they on the middle of the planet there's this thing and it's literally just like a little circular platform with a little backlit dome on top of it and they look at it and go, what is that oh, it looks like some sort of matter transfer device it, <laughs> it's a it's just a little it's a platform with a dome on it you have no idea what that is <laughs> and, right. and Dax just like you have no idea. <laughs> what this is i just love the techno babble it's great but you know what though it it brings up something that you said in trivia where these were the ideas that were kind of 
developed and it's like we don't want this trope and we don't want that trope right yeah it's kind of like what she's saying and they just threw it in there like nope we don't do these tropes that's not what this is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so instead of that we are in something new right you know absolutely And, and i like how garrick you know he was like right lockstep with her like what would a tailor know about any of that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> well, right? I, I, okay, yeah. What would a tailor know about that stuff? But but come on. I mean, we, we can drop the whole... I'm surprised that Odo even said that about him being a tailor. Because yeah. we, we, we've dropped that pretense long ago. It's just not even a thing anymore. You know? That's true. Yeah. Right? They have a completely different uh, relationship now. Yeah, we say, just... After Dias cast in Broken Link, yeah. nowhere. Just like, yeah. hey, oh, you're a part of the Obsidian Order. Oh, okay, this is why you know all this stuff. Done. Like, right. we're just done. And we all accept that you maintain this tailor shop because you got to do something. You got to be somewhere. But we're not even pretending anymore like that's what your true calling is. Um, mm. Hey, uh, what color is uh, Cardassian blood? Is it sort of brown? Or I couldn't really tell. But we, we see it in that scene where he gets punched. And then you cut to the infirmary and he's bleeding from the same place. Um, you know, I, it just, he, he does, he bleeds. And I thought they tried to make it look a little alien, but we couldn't quite tell. Yeah. It looked like Canar. It's, I think you're, I think you're right. Got it kind of, kind of viscous like, you know, and dark. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just get that Canar prop stuff and just pour it all over Andrew's face, you know, in prosthetic. And there you go. It's I, I, just like, oh man, Cardassians, they love Kanar so much. It's just running through their veins, literally right. running through their veins. Yeah. Right. You know, with, uh, let's, let's put Ractagino, like, you know, in Ivy drip for the Klingons, mm-hmm. Kanar <laughs> for the Cardassians. Cardassians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always thought that it was interesting that that scene, because I thought that this episode was trending a little bit more to like what was going on with the matrix because in the matrix, whatever happened to you inside the matrix happened to you outside in real right. life. Thought the same. Yeah. And the whole thing you're right with Garrick being a pickpocket. I thought that was neat though. Yeah. It's like Garrick, you read Garrick in so many different ways, right? So Garrick tried to, he tried to bribe his way out of the situation, but did he know that when he was going to bribe his way out of the situation that he was going to get punched because he knows Cardassian psychology so well <laughs> that he goaded the guy into punching him so he could pickpocket him for the comp link? Right. Well, or am I giving, or am I giving him way too much credit? I maybe. I mean, maybe he's just that good in the moment. You know. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. I like to think about that. I do really like in this how Quark is just different enough. You know, like he, he's in a different power dynamic when he's on Tarok Nor versus DS9. He's answering to different people. The stakes are different. The whole business is different. He's the same guy. But he's clearly affected by the circumstance. And Armin, like, we we don't get a whole lot of Quark, but he sells all of that with just very minor changes in his delivery. That's Mm -hmm. that's, uh, just certainly a show of a great actor. So I said this in an earlier episode. I said several of my favorite characters on Deep Space Nine are either some of the secondary characters... Or some, uh, or or some of the main characters, especially Quark and and uh, O'Brien. Mm. Well, now I have Garrick, Goldicott, and Quark yes. in the same episode. Yeah, and I love it. That's why this episode was so exciting for me. But let's talk about Quark's kind of personality here. Okay. I always felt that he was kind of a a cross between Rick Blaine and Captain Louie from Casablanca. Oh, sure. Because he was almost Rick Blaineish because he moves stuff through his bar. Yeah. You know, yeah, okay. and 
he kind of got those guys. Like, I think he actually felt bad for those three and got them out to work outside of holding. I, he didn't I thought have to so pay too. Him squat, yeah. right? He didn't have to pay him squat, yeah. not even like a stripolette. Right. So that's being generous because just getting him out of holding was good enough. Yep. And then he was like, you know, after he was being interrogated by Thrax, he was kind of like the Captain Louis side of, of the personality where it's like, you know, how, how dare you? How dare you have gambling going on in this casino? Yeah. Here your winnings. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know? right. Like, yeah, hey, 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 everything's cool, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, everything's cool. You know, he just very, very quick on his feet. Yeah. Yeah, I like all of that about him. But there was something about that scene that I kind of wondered, and I, I just I wonder if you got something out of it that I didn't. So when uh, it's Odo says something to Cisco about Quark having a little accident, and then Cisco agrees to that, mm-hmm. and... It, it, he wonders if it would affect anything in their own reality. If like literally saying like, what if we kill Quark? Like there was no payoff for that. I, I at least yeah. I, I felt it was just out of nowhere. Like they, they threw out this idea, which is a pretty sinister idea. They have no reason to dislike or to the extent of wanting to kill the Quark in this reality, but he kind of throws it out there and Cisco's like, yeah, I'm on board, whatever, let's do it. But mm. that that is an unexplored plot thread for something that sinister to be introduced. Yeah, I always thought that was just kind of like a what if he just kind of breaks his leg? That's not going to change the timeline, is it? Right. You know, or if I, what if I punch him in the in the ear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That, that's kind of like where I what, what I took away from that. Yeah, you know? I I hope that's all it was because I mean it, again it was just sort of like. They just met this version of Quark, and yeah, Odo has this strained relationship with Quark anyway, but mm. in the real world, they still look out for each other. So as a joke, they didn't really play it as a joke. So it's like, if you're going to go there, I think you'd better at least have some resolution to that. <laughs> I think that would have been better off like between say, um, Odo and Garrick, because mm. you have Odo's a very heavy character and Cisco's a very heavy character. Both actors are very heavy actors. Right. So when you're like kind of delivering like these really light, quick lines, they come off differently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think you needed right. someone who's like sarcastic and, and wry and that's Garrick. Right. Not Cisco. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about Lita. Oh, huh? yeah. Lita. Yeah. Uh-huh. So... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Interesting choice. I mean, obviously the name resonates, but what is it now with Dax being thrown into these situations where she's just, you know, kind of trivialized? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's unfortunate because we're, we're coming off this episode where that's exactly what happened. And now we're in a, in this week's episode where I, I asked the same thing, like, yes, Dax has to be cool and she has to not get found out. She has to go along with the, the, the game here, the situation to survive. But, oh, I, I want Dax to be the tough butt kicker that she is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and really be the smartest one in the room. Um, but, but here it's just not happening. I'm surprised that this is kind of like the same Dax that gave so much agency to with, say, like, you know, Blood Oath, you know, when she went off with Cora, Koloth, and Kang. To, to, to take out the albino. Yeah. Right? I mean, she was there. Yeah. She was fighting. She had a bat left in her hand. Right. You know, she went off and get the, you know, went to go get the sword of Kalis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not saying that what happened to her, you know, where she ended up with this character was 
was bad. It's just that she walks into Caldecott's office and off does the little twirly around and her hand shaking because she's fearful. And I know that's all an act. It still doesn't sit well with me that this is where Dax has ended up in the last, say, couple episodes. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Hey, and, and speaking of that drink with uh, Ducat, not a whole lot of specific food to mention in this episode, but there's all that, like, half-eaten stuff on the plates at Quark's. And, um, yeah. you know, we, we're driven to think that it smells bad and it's just it's been out there and it's gross. And I thought this is the one time on set that you use actual sushi. Because then it's just, you know, sitting there all day, it's going to be gross at the end of the day. You know, I thought it looked like squid. I, I did, too. I, I thought it was fish of some sort. Thought, yeah, squid, perfectly yeah. acceptable. Yeah. And in that scene, interesting bit of dialogue there where uh, Cisco and, and Garrick are chatting. And uh, Cisco uh, says, everything is tidy when someone else is doing the cleaning. And uh, Garrick says the Bajorans were much more suited for this kind of work than we were. Servile work is in their nature. To which Cisco replies, I'll remember to mention that to Major Kira when we get back. And then Garrick says, there are exceptions to every rule. And wow, just Garrick's <laughs> built-in racism. It is a just a painful bit of dialogue. And then I think back to the beginning of the episode what was it that Garrick said when he was on Bajor letting something like this just slip? Because it's, it's just this casual racism, just this casual superiority. Like, yeah, well, well, of course we conquered you because, yeah, I mean, you're you're servile, you're weak. That's what we do. Why, why, why is this such a big deal? It's so interesting how Garrick, like, phrased it in one way and then Guldicott calling them children who he must parent in the same way. You know, it's... It's interesting there. The Cardassians have just always seen the Bajorans as, as being like infantile and subservient. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's because they're religious. Yeah. Could very well be. That, that right? could be part of the, the equation there for them. And I have to agree, John, the, uh, the everything's tidy when someone else is doing the cleaning. That's my favorite line in this oh. episode. Oh, so it's so brilliant. It says so much. Yeah. Right. That is a, a cracking piece of dialogue there. Um, another great bit of dialogue. Uh, Quark says to Thrax, well, you know how rumors are. Thrax says, yes, they're usually true. <laughs> so, that is just, yeah, on so many levels. It's good stuff. Don't even need to describe it. Um, I bought Kurtwood as a, as a Cardassian wholesale. Oh, he looked man. so good in the makeup. That his his makeup is awesome, and it's a little bit uh, that was a little bit lighter than Ducat's or some of the other Cardassian we've seen, or maybe it's just the lighting on him in those scenes. It just suited him; it made him stand out, and yeah. he sold it because he's mm -hmm. just that good. Oh, I love that little detail of turning the vase over as a signal to the resistance because it is one of those very like World War II again talking about film noir, Tarek mm -hmm. noir. It felt perfectly in place there. Sure, you almost feel like, you know, say, uh, like a Mr. Burger type character, you mm -hmm. know, uh, from the Bajoran Underground. Like, hey, I have this really nice ring. Yep. You know, oh, it fell into your soup. Uh. So, <laughs> what does it say? Uh -huh. Yeah, I always thought that the scene that's, um, or scenes towards the end where Oda was really just in such pain and agony of trying to. And I'm, I'm saying this in, like, not necessarily a physical pain and agony, although he was, he was showing signs of that, too. Mm -hmm. But trying to mentally flip Thrax over to their side. He can see it. 
mm-hmm. right? He can see that there's something that's behind Thrax's eyes that he can connect with as a lawman. You know, it's like, you're there, do the investigation, do the work, keep digging, keep doing it. You're almost there. You can almost prove your case. And right. just the, the Renee acting from behind that prosthetic, but getting such depth and emotion in those scenes is unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah. good. So good. And you're a film fan, so I'm sure you appreciate the, appreciated the Hitchcock Zoom. Yes. So awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, describe it for, for our listeners. Yeah. So when I, when I took film study, and I do believe that Alfred Hitchcock himself, he created this special effect uh, camera shot or camera dynamic for Vertigo. That's where correct. Yeah. What happened was is there was a cameraman at the time. They would lay on a dolly track, and they would pull him backwards as the cameraman would zoom as quick as he could, zoom the lens forward. So the background would fall away. But you would focus, and uh, the the foreground elements, especially the actor, would rush towards you, yes. so that the background would fall away in frame and just completely get you know kind of like fuzzy in the uh, atmospheric perspective, and you just feel like the ground just comes out from underneath you. And, and that speaks to well, it speaks to Lavar as a director again, using the technology around him to tell the story and convey the emotion. And Jonathan West, being uh, he was the DP on this episode, so again, very technically adept. And we talked about how technically adept he was uh, uh, previously. But um, yeah, I, I probably one of the more famous uh, shots like that, the Hitchcock zoom, is in Jaws. Used mm-hmm. a great effect there with uh, Roy Scheider on the beach, but it's unmistakable when you see it, and yeah. I'm so glad that they used it in this. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I I know that um, Nana has been used sparingly in these last few episodes because, as you can see, her her pregnancy is progressing throughout the course of these episodes. Right. right. But her scene with Odo in the end, as as short and as small as it was, it spoke volumes and it just really it just it's a credit to what she can do with a few lines as an actor if Oda needed to share his pain maybe it would have been easier to just call cyborg i hear he's good at that we'll discuss things past in a moment but now a word from express vpn so, John, we advertise ExpressVPN from time to time here on Mission Log, and the big question is, why use ExpressVPN? Well, if you like to access your internet as if you're from a different country, if you like to, say, access Netflix and all the different shows and movies available depending on where you are in different locations across the globe, ExpressVPN can help you unlock thousands of new shows and movies from all of these different streaming libraries, wherever you are around the world. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality and with zero buffering. And ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, and even your TV. 
Yeah, so we've talked about that, how, you know, you and I both have the ExpressVPN app on our computers and phones and tablets, and it's just one button to press to turn it on or disconnect, and it doesn't affect speeds at all, which is really, that was the biggest concern for me for having a VPN at all. But um, here's what's great. It, it really does work with streaming services. I mean, like, like you mentioned, you know, Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, so many more. It'll work. So you can choose. You can uh, set the specific country within ExpressVPN that you want to be using. You can choose from uh, up to well, nearly 100 different countries. So... I did that. I, I was able to change my location a few times and actually try it out. And, and I have to say, um, I love BBC News. So being able to watch BBC News live and then check out some of their archival coverage is great. And even better than that, uh, Channel 4 in the UK, which is sort of like more entertainment based, you know, there's a lot of reality shows and stuff like that. But Darren Brown, one of my favorite, uh, gosh, skeptic personalities, magician, uh, he has a whole series on Channel 4 that I was able to watch by using ExpressVPN and looking like I was accessing their site from within the UK. So it was so easy to use. I just made sure that ExpressVPN was on, go to that little drop down, change the location, I'm connected, and then I watched the page, and that was it. It was like magic. So if you use our link right now at expressvpn.com slash mission log, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for an extra three months free. All right, Norman, we joked a little bit in the last segment about Garrick um, in that opening scene in particular. I, I mean... I can only assume the worst, uh, but it, it did sort of make you wonder how this conference on Bejor was set up and, and what, what were the expectations and, and what was the reality of his reception like? Um, so there's sort of on the surface level, you can say there is definitely value in hearing different historical perspectives. And if you're doing your due diligence as, uh, as an educator, as a historian, as it seems like this was a very austere event, it makes sense that, that you would have this. And historically, we have seen examples of old enemies becoming friends. But in a serious way, I mean, like, what did he say and what did the Bajorans say in response? Just by having that scene with him and Cisco on uh, Tarek Nor in Quarks and him saying, like, oh, well, the Bajorans are servile. This is just how they are. I think that informs a lot of his attitude going into this meeting because he's holding on to that attitude even after he's left. Mm -hmm. I, I, I genuinely wonder, did he think that he was just presenting facts in a dispassionate way, or did he go in as an apologist for the Cardassians, which clearly will not win over anyone? And I also wonder, was there no sympathy or, or attempt on his part at understanding on his part? Like, look, I, I know that that's not what this episode is about necessarily, but he is a major part of this episode, and we start out with that, and we see that attitude carry through. I don't think that the Cardassians are apologetic about anything. I honestly don't. That's very true. So, yeah. 
you know, in in using that as my rationale, I do think that that Garrick went under the pretense of having this dispassionate, open discussion about how the Bajoran occupation and the Cardassian involvement, but not in an apologist way. In just this is these are the facts as we saw them. It's not our fault that you don't see them the same way, you know. Yeah, right. Like, I, I, it's sort of the non-apology. Like, I'm sorry that you see this way. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that you felt that way. Mm-hmm. Not I'm sorry for what we exactly. did. Exactly. It's like, it's, I mean, yeah. I understand that you're upset with us thinking that you are actually servile. But that's just the truth of the matter. And, you know, <laughs> everything, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, everything yeah. is a yeah. backward compliment or a backhanded compliment with Garrick. But it's kind of like Goldicott. Goldicott, every single time he talks about the occupations, like, you have no idea what I sacrificed during the occupation when this happened. You have no idea the, what I put myself through because your people made us, you know. And even with Thrax, Thrax is like, all of this would have been over if your people just stopped fighting. <sighs> yeah. Well, well yeah. I, I, I've got thoughts about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, yeah. 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 I got thoughts about that too. Well, that, all right. You mentioned Ducat, and I think we should, you know, look, this is all leading up to Odo because Odo is, is the centerpiece of this episode. We have to talk about him, but I, I think we need to make some stops along the way here. Ducat, very interesting again. I, I think Ducat is one of the most interesting characters out of the most interesting species mm-hmm. on the show. And um, when I say interesting, I mean that here he is terrifyingly creepy and exploitative. I like that they've explored all these sides of him. And and here we get more of this dimension that's not just a warrior conqueror. He's leaning into this manipulative part where he's got like this personal ego at stake in everything that's happening it's not just about he's not just the the mustache twirling bad guy who's like how much land do i conquer how many bad you know bad guys how many good guys do i kill in the process now there's something that we've seen hints of uh sometimes very obviously uh all along about his ego involved here he wants and needs female approval and to that extent, it's even more twisted that so far it's his passion for Bajoran women, mm-hmm. the inferiors that he has conquered, that servile species that he has conquered. Think about it with Kira. Think about it with his Bajoran, you know, half Bajoran love child, um, Zial. It's... I, I think that this is uh, just an incredible psychological area that we're in here with the conqueror needing approval from those who are conquered. But it's not just it's not just sort of winning people over to his side. It's this personal and sensual sexual thing as well well i we talked about this in indiscretions where i said that goldicott doesn't feel that he's won until he's actually like broken down every single uh bajoran who has resisted him or who has you know has uh evaded his charm and that's i think that to him that's like that's appealing in a way like he, it's like there's a there's a, a chase, 
you know, some type of, you know, sexual uh, predatory chase that's happening. Well, and look how far he's taken that, though. He he has a child with a Bajoran woman who he resisted to kill. I mean, fortunately, he was stopped by Kira, but, but we think he came to his senses there as well and and uh, understood why he was choosing not to do that. But it, it's like it's not good enough just to have uh, for that period have been the uh, the conquering force. It's not just good enough to have won someone over to his side, which they, they didn't. Clearly, they were resisting. He had to go so far as to actually uh, reproduce with a Bajoran and have Bajorans as lovers, even if they were rightfully so resistant and and uh, they, they were non-willing in this. But that's... That, that is equally, it seems, a goal of his as the military goal. Well, you can take it in um, almost um, like a real-time analogy with, say, the way that, you know, uh, 12th century, 13th century England, you know, treated Scotland. So in England, they wanted to conquer from without and within. And the way to do that was to defeat them militarily, but also defeat them by um, by diluting the the native population, i.e., you know, the right of prima nocta, um, raping and uh, and you know taking children for their own and raising them in English lords and ladies, you know, as uh, on countryside farms and houses and taking them as wards, you know, that's that's the way that I see like kind of Ducat being. He's like the, this lord of Terak Nor, and he acts lordly. And he wants those around him to fawn over him as his servants and those who have unconditional love and respect for him. And I think that, you know, um, also in, in such a way, you know, let's take another example. Say uh, Ralph Fiennes' character in Schindler's List. You know, he, ha- he mm. brings in mm-hmm. uh, a Jewish servant woman and, and treats her actually very well. But um, he, he kind of uh, has her around just because he knows that since you're a servant, you're not going to tell all of my secrets that I'm going to confess to you because I need to confess to somebody or I need to talk to somebody. But you know that if you say one word of anything that I'm saying, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill every generation of your family from now until kingdom come. So yeah. you know, there's, this, there's this, this threat of annihilation that he's using that's wrapped in this charm that he has. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, a new or unexplored theme. And you think about movies like The Night Porter and all where where there is this sort of steeped in reality, this idea that there is this strange personal and sexual element to what happened with some people who were this, you know, occupying controlling force. Um, but again, just that that military part wasn't enough, or at least it informed this uh, this personal side to it as well. I, I think it's one of the more complex and sort of deep character elements that they've given to somebody who is a villain in Star Trek, and particularly here in, in DS9. Let's talk about Odo. Mm-hmm. He he's uh, well, he's the big changeling in the room here. Oh, yeah. Not a changeling, though, here. He's a solid. (laughs) But this is where I'm going to get ambivalent about this episode. I am very interested in the psychology at play here. His uh, Odo's mind is working like a human mind. He is using this dream state to work through a problem 
or or specifically to relive a trauma. Um, and, and our minds do that. Our minds work overtime attempting to make sense out of complicated situations or justify things which we otherwise wouldn't really be able to justify. So that subconscious is just ticking away, ticking away. And I really appreciate and love the idea that Odo is complicated. But I ask myself, did this episode really feel the need to take him down a notch? I mean, and really take him down a notch here. So, like, like it, it wasn't good enough that he was someone who worked with the enemy and always skirted that line because he was always principled. But, but no, here they just, they sort of slip in this extra detail that he knowingly called for the execution of innocent people. It's a good story. It's a very good story, but does that in any way help with your appreciation of Odo's depth and complexity? See, I may have misinterpreted the episode, or or maybe there's just a, a different layer that I see. Because I always mm-hmm. thought that Odo, he he knew that they were innocent after the fact, because he had more evidence after the second bombing that happened, like, what, several weeks later. He knew that there was circumstantial evidence, and he wanted to keep his convictions high and wrap everything up neat and tidy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he, he executed innocent people. He executed people that were, that were sentenced based purely on circumstantial evidence. And for him, that was good enough at the time. But... He knew that after his investigation of the next and, and other subsequent bombings that I didn't do my job well enough. I let innocent people die because I didn't investigate thoroughly enough. And this is what everyone's giving me credit for. So I'm not necessarily a charlatan or a cheat or a phony. It's just I'm not the legend that everyone thinks I am. But I have to let everyone believe that because it keeps me in a position of law and authority. That's where I see his struggle. Well, I admire your optimism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I I, I think that Odo, at the very least, there was and is this element of, well, the, the doubt now is gone. The doubt now is replaced by certainty. But even at the time, there was enough doubt that he was conflicted by that. And it's sort of like a condemnation of uh, any sort of capital punishment where where you, you have to say, look, even if there is a 1% chance that you've got it wrong, that 1% means that you put somebody to death who did not deserve mm-hmm. it. You know, that, that, that's not enough. That is not good enough at all. I feel like we come away from this with the idea that, yeah, we we can say that a uh, a hero, and that, that's, you know, heroes doing a lot of work there in that uh, phrase, but a, a hero can have problems, a hero can have doubts, a hero can not be perfect, but I think we're also asking a lot to say, oh, and by the way, this is the one who allowed these potentially innocent people to die. True, true. I, you yeah. know, I, I see what you're getting at, but at the same time, mm-hmm. though, I, I feel that 
I don't think that Oda was taken down a peg because of this episode. I think it just gives you more backstory to his history and why he's so doggedly determined to be so damn good at being a lawman right now is because he did screw up, right? It, he, he made that mm-hmm. mistake and he's like, he goes, and, and he, I wish that he said with a little bit more certainty at the end that these were the only three because I knew I royally screwed up and everyone's giving me credit for being this great lawman and this great constable, but I screwed up and never again. It was just those three innocent people are on my conscience, but no one else, but he's ambiguous about it because he doesn't either remember or doesn't want to admit that he did or maybe he just wasn't that good at his job at one point in time. Yeah. You know? And, and I, I'm okay with that. I, I'm, I'm more than okay with that, saying that he was not that good at his job at that time, that he has grown into it and he is better now than he was before. But man, that final scene with Kira, mm-hmm. I think that's chilling because he, he, he just sort of, even now, in the timeline of the show now, <laughs> quote unquote, he's he's struggling with this idea that he did something that was not just wrong, but unconscionable mm-hmm. that that goes against everything that he supposedly stands for and that people know him for and look up to him for. But I think that that's what I think that in the beginning is what Cisco was trying to make uh, a finer point of. And he said, and then the legacy was or the legend was born. And when Odo shot in that look, it's like, I didn't want any of this. It's not my <laughs> fault that I'm a legend. It's not on me. It's on them. Right. It's like I didn't ask yeah. for it. I wasn't that good of a lawman, but they think I am. And, and maybe that's helping me, you know, uh, you know, hold down law and order on the station now and giving me some kind of respect as I walk up and down the promenade to hold my head up a little bit higher. But building up somebody into a legend and having that legend fall short isn't that person's fault. Right. You know, it's like meeting your hero and, and seeing that your hero is a total jerk. Right. It's not your it's not their fault. You're the one who you know, you're the one who put him up on this pedestal for the last Seven years thinking that Oda yeah. was the greatest thing since, you know, uh, I don't know, since ever, because he was so good at his job. He did maintain law and order up to a point. And maybe somewhere along the line, these, there were Bajorans that were um, that were helped by him because he did catch criminals uh, that stole from them or, or did somebody harm and brought them to justice. He just screwed up this once. You know? Okay, but so let's figure out what's the alternative here. So if if this had just been a part of the record, if this is something that is known because Cardassians keep meticulous records, we know that. That's true. Yeah. Um, if this is just something that could have just been known from the beginning, mm-hmm. and here we are seven years later, is that seven years enough time for somebody like Kira to process? I know what you did then because it's part of the record. We all know, but we're still friends and, and we're still okay with you being the head of security on this station and we will still trust your judgment. Like, do you think that, that they would still even get to that point? Well, I think you have to trust the person that you know, not the person that they were, you know, because you're, you're judging them on the actions that you have have placed your faith and trust and life in their hands with, you know, those are the actions that you're trusting. It's like Garrick. Why would anyone trust Garrick? They know who he is. They know, but (laughs) nobody, nobody should. should. But at the same time though, 
at least in my opinion, because not all of these characters are Starfleet, so you don't blanket trust them as you would a blanket trust a Starfleet officer with your life, even if you don't even know them or have met them or served with them. So every one of these characters, I believe, is operating with some level or degree of paranoia about the people on the station. They don't necessarily always 100% trust each other. They work well together, and they'll trust each other to get certain things done, you know, protect the station or go on a mission. I mean, but Quark and Odo are they're friends, but up to a point, right? Like Kira and Odo are friends, and they're close up to a point, right? right? And then these truths are, you know, they, they, become, they are brought to the surface for these reasons. And maybe it's just she wanted to trust him more. And maybe because she's disappointed, she's like, you know what? I have better instincts than this. So why am I not listening to them? Oh, There's friends up to a point, but then how do you deal with, oh, and they allowed the deaths of three of my countrymen? Three people who are on my side helping to fight this injustice. Well, it was a mistake. Yeah. You know, but the thing is, it's, there's, I think there's a difference between knowing that they were innocent and serving them up for execution instead of not having all the facts in front of you and serving them up for execution. I think that at the time, Oda was like, you know, I am the, I am the, you know, the, the law and order on this station and... There's enough circumstantial evidence to convict you. That's what he was saying to Thrax. That's why I love that scene so much. He's like, do yeah, the research. It is dig, great. dig, dig. You know, it's like you're almost there. You can almost prove our innocence. He's like, I, I don't care about right. innocence. I care about convictions. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> true, true to the Cardassian legal right. system. And I do believe that he was having an argument with himself in that scene. It was yeah. him arguing with himself in this very circular way of, of trying to resolve whatever logic Odo believed in, which was either law and order versus doing the work, right? You know, there's, you, you can say that, yeah, these people are guilty because I have this much to say about it. I have this much evidence and yeah, I can book them or these people's lives are at stake. And if I don't do my job, somebody innocent is going to die. And that's why I find, I find the, the dynamic of his character so fascinating in this. And I'm glad that Kira didn't li- get him off the hook or leave him off the hook at the end. Yes. Computer and program. Oh, wait. I am the computer. Oh, well. I had to try it. We've had a lot to chew on in this episode, and this episode is very deep in terms of its morals, meanings, and messages. But first, as we do with Mission Log, we want to take a look to see if this episode first holds up in our opinion. So, John, how did you feel about this episode? Did it hold up for you? And then we'll get into the morals, meetings, and messages. Uh, so I honestly have to say I'm a bit ambivalent about this one because it's one of those episodes where I feel like uh, how I rank the versus how I rank the morals, meanings, messages are going to be a conflict here. And that, that's always tough to figure out, well, what do you ultimately say about it? How do you ultimately uh, rank or recommend this episode? Now, for this part, I'll just have to say that it is produced incredibly well. Uh, the production value is high. It's as high as it ever gets on uh, DS9. 
particularly when you're doing a bottle show like this. You know, it's a little different when you do something like Trials and Tribulations, where it's a showcase for special effects. Um, The acting here is just top-notch, and it's what we expect out of DS9. It is laser-focused on this mystery surrounding a character, and it does not pull punches about that character. And let's talk about the guest stars. Kurtwood Smith, magnetic. He's incredible. I wish he could be on every episode as a Cardassian, as Thrax, or somebody else. Um, there's a gimmick here, which is, you know, why this is all happening. And I know that they wanted to stay away from time travel or mirror universe or holodeck simulation. But that gimmick is, it, it stretched a little thin even for Star Trek. Because it literally comes down to scenes where, what's causing this? So I, I don't know, man. It's just weird. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of what we get. Um, but I, I'm still asking myself about this episode, why? What is accomplished by taking Odo to this additionally dark place? We have gotten a lot of dark places out of Odo. Odo is one of the most complex fascinating characters that we've had on ds9 and out of all of star trek what did we accomplish by going one more layer with him here and is that the best use of of time with him because we know that he served under the cardassians we know that he wasn't necessarily a willing participant he was the hired gun you know and that's all stuff that we got across before i think you could infer a lot of from before so if you're going to go here i think honestly you kind of get it out of the way up front then you allow the time to rebuild and heal after that so i know that this may sound like a lot of wishful thinking on my part and if you've listened to mission log long enough you know that i don't always have to have a story that has a happy ending but but bear with me here for a minute (laughs) i would have preferred that we give Odo a reason for his actions where he truly had no choice, where we truly saw the conflict instead of like, well, this is the best answer at the time. He could still be guilty. He could still be shown forgiveness and he could still have that moment with Kira. Like that, that is all valuable stuff. But to me, this episode's story feels like it went a step too far. Now, I say that, but I don't want to take away at all from the quality of the acting, from the, the, the depths of story that we took, and, and from the attempt here. I think I just part ways with it when I ask why. So, Norman, how do you feel? Yeah, I love the production on this. I think it set the tone for not just for returning to Tarak Nor and for... I love origin stories. I love origin story type formats. So I got to see a little bit more of the past seven years now past before, you know, uh, Cisco came on to deep space nine. And I think it also is uh, allegorical to what's going on in Odo's mind in Odo's soul. You know, it's dark and it's um, there's a lot of paranoia and there's a lot of just gut wrenching angst that's happening uh, throughout the course of this episode, throughout the course of this narrative. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to sacrifice a couple of the things that I said about my own notes because there's something mm. that you said that I'd like to, to, to 
tap into a little sure. bit more. And that is um, like you, you're just trying to make you're trying to understand like why this took down Odo down a mm-hmm. peg. I don't think it took Odo down a peg. I don't I don't see that part um, of of your analysis mm-hmm. of this episode. In in what way was he taken down a peg? I I, I think. So what we have been led to understand about Odo up to this point is that even under the worst of circumstances, even when he felt like he had no choice, he would still answer honestly and truthfully. And he had no, he had no stake in what was going on with the Cardassians. And in this episode, I feel like what we get is just to say like, well, yeah, we know all that about Odo. And maybe even if some of what he did was morally ambiguous, so sort of like uh, uh, sort of like the rocket scientist who worked for the Nazis, but then mm-hmm. came to America after the fact and contributed to amazing achievements for humanity. You know, we, we, we sort of forgive the idea that they worked under this evil regime. They weren't the ones who were pulling triggers necessarily. But we we will try as best we can to reconcile their behaviors with the, the, the people that we know now. I feel like mm-hmm. in this episode, A, it is a pretty short distance of time. It's seven years. and And really, Odo had only been discovered, what? A couple of three years before that, <laughs> you know, he's still very young as a changeling. To me, this episode left us with this idea that Odo was willing to suspend his principles. He was willing to um, not act ethically or morally or even thoroughly doing his job because it was expedient. It was expedient to protect himself and his position where he was. And even under those circumstances, I think he's better than that. Well, he is now. He is now. He is now. Yeah. But I, I, I still question setting this, first of all, where we do in the series. Here we are in, you know, early season five. And mm. we need to introduce this thing now that's like, oh, it's a little soap opera-ish, like, Oh, now Kira has to deal with the fact that he killed three people that were from the resistance. And he knew at the time that they might be innocent and might, might is doing a lot of work there, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's true. Uh, Yeah. 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 I mean, I I get that. I get that. Uh, I guess the way that I see, you know, what happened seven years ago with Odo was um, it's something that in that basically informed him that this should never happen again and put him on a different path of being a far more, uh, uh, you know, uh, effective interrogator and uh, detective and constable and lawman because he can't afford to go to fall into that path again Mm -hmm. or it'll, it'll destroy him because I think that he's always wrestling with that in the back of his mind every single time he convicts a criminal. And I think that's I think this type of a story is needed to be told because where does somebody like Odo get the the passion for his type of work where it's it's unstoppable? It's like he's like an engine that keeps coming. You can't stop Odo 
once he puts his, you know, once he sets his sights on you, Odo always gets his man. And I think that they established that very well, but I like stories like this because it's because Odo didn't get his man and caused the death of three innocent people that he's this way now, the better version of Odo. And I don't think that necessarily takes him down a peg as a character development. I think that actually makes his character history richer, in my opinion, to mm-hmm. see, just to see that there's something that's eating away at him all the time. And everyone who thinks that he's this legendary lawman and bastion of order and justice, he knows that he's walking a fine line between being discovered for what he did and throwing away kind of like the goodwill of the people that he's serving. He can't afford to do that or else he's going to lose the confidence of the people on the station. But at the same time, though, he knows that a moment like this could expose him for being something other than what people believed his legend yeah. is. But they built that up. I'm still going to stick to that point. They made that No, legend, look, there's a lot right? of truth to what you're saying. I, I, I don't disagree with you there. I, I think that maybe the wall that I'm hitting with this is that this is something now that has been kept secret, is eating away at him, and he's got to deal with now because, again, at the timeline of the show where we are, it's today that Kira comes into the office and says, whoa, how could you do this? We we haven't had the opportunity in this five-year history now that we've got with Odo to to mm. pick apart and reconcile here are the things that happened in the past. Here is how we will here's how we'll give forgiveness and and acceptance to who you are. And mm. you know that that might partly be affected by just sort of the reality that this is 5 plus years into a show where I know we've only got 7 years, 7 seasons of that show. And it's like, okay, you come in here in the you know, the fourth quarter with this. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so that that might partly be coloring my uh, my acceptance of of the story that they told here. Yeah, I, I can mm-hmm. say that the timing isn't probably the best for this. Usually, this is kind of like in say like the first half, you know, of of the total body of work. But knowing that you know the entirety of season four was a timeline that changed kind of like the overall narrative, maybe this like at the beginning of season four would have been the right time, right in the middle of everything, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I can see the point of, uh, you know, it's it's a little kind of late in the game to, to kind of uh, give a little bit more exposition to a character that's already well-established. And so where are we going to go with this? But at the same time, though, I do like going back into characters' histories and seeing a little bit more depth. It's almost kind of like something that works in novel form. You know, you read about this in a novel and you're like, oh, wow, I wish I could have seen that in an episode. But where would it have fit in? Yeah, it's sort of like I I, kind of want the next scene after this, which is Cisco sitting down with Odo and saying, I understand that you did terrible things. You need to grapple with the idea that you did terrible things like because like you need that scene with Kira. But Kira is coming from a different place. Kira is from coming from this place of very personal investment, personal hurt in her friend and in the political situation that informed everything about her up until then. So you kind of right. need this outside place of a guy like Cisco to put it in perspective. 
but I don't think we're going to get that in the next episode. <laughs> we'll fanfic that. <laughs> we will. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So after all is said and done about uh, sort of our, our judgment of the episode, I think, you know, if we look at morals, meanings, messages, I, I th- there's, you know, <laughs> in a challenging episode, there are great, great scenes just front to back. I really appreciate Odo saying there is more to life than rule of law. He says that to Thrax, and it comes right after Thrax is admonishing the Bajorans who would dare to fight back against the occupation, calling them terrorists, that they only have themselves to blame for the violence that they find themselves in. If they would only, if they would just be good and not fight back, then it would all be over. Oh, oh, that is painful. That is painful. <laughs> yeah. Good for Odo for saying something there. Um yeah. And, you know, there there is something here about Odo, you, you know, are we to do as he says, not as he does? <laughs> I, you know, I can certainly relate to the theme here of honesty and integrity and following evidence where it leads rather than drawing a conclusion that is convenient. But Odo didn't do that seven years ago. He He sold his soul and his integrity to his superiors. I don't know how you recover from that then that's sort of where we are on the journey with this character uh, as we have picked apart today. And again, you know, I wonder if there is a missed opportunity here. Can you, can you be the guy who was just following orders and still be a good guy? Can you have done something wrong in the past and still be redeemed and forgiven? Because there, there are degrees to that. There are levels to which we will accept that. Those stories are there and available to Odo, and I think I would have been more interested in following these threads rather than just taking someone, again, I I say take him down a peg because it felt like, well, this is interesting. Yeah, let's just mess with Odo this week. Because we've already explored in many episodes preceding this, what was it that made Odo who he was back then? And again, I I will concede that maybe if this story had fallen somewhere in the first couple of seasons, back when there really was that contentious relationship with Kira, back when we were getting to know who this Odo guy is and where does he stand, then maybe that would have been the, the, the kickoff point to get us to where we are now. What about you, Norman? Morals, meanings, messages. Well, I felt that this episode had a lot to do with perspective and forgiveness. And there's a, there's a line of dialogue that, that I attribute to this in my particular understanding of this episode. And it comes from J. Michael Straczynski. And he said in one of his episodes of Babylon 5, there are three sides to every story. Your side, their side, and the truth. <laughs> and in this story, I believe that holds true because seven years ago, Odo was a much different person under a much different set of circumstances. He believed what he was doing was right as the head of station security and the head of the promenade uh, as security chief of the promenade. And he believes that if he maintained a more, um, you know, a, a more organized system of law and order that maybe he saved more lives instead of creating circumstances that would have either taken more lives or ruined lives. You know, he's trying to justify the amount of convictions versus the amount of lives saved or criminals stopped. That's, he's weighing things out very dispassionately, as, 
as Garrick did in the mm-hmm. beginning. He was weighing his his dissertation at the conference dispassionately, and that's where Odo was. It wasn't about who I felt was right, who I felt was wrong, how did I feel about this person, how did I not feel about this person, did I care, did I not care? It was about convicting or releasing right. that he was a mechanism in this, in this situation. And he made a mistake. He made a grave, horrible, tragic, terrible, unforgivable mistake that cost the lives of three innocent men because he was trying to maintain a code and a system that gave him purpose. This, this code of being uh, this, this bastion of justice and law. And seven years later, now, I believe that that tragedy, that personal tragedy of his, has made him a better professional and maybe even a better person because he can no longer afford to suffer another failure like the one that cost the lives of three innocent people. So he made a mistake, and he's paying for it. He paid for it and is still paying for it. And now his sterling reputation, the reputation that everyone believes is, you know, is uh, unstainable, has a stain on it. And it may not be the last one if we discover more. Mm-hmm. What matters is what we saw in that private moment with Thrax that, I, that we discussed earlier, that he's grown from that mistake. And in that scene, he's trying to warn Thrax of that same fate. But Thrax is him in that scene. He's the allegory of the younger version of himself. Odo is trying to sell his younger self and convince his younger self that you can't afford to make this kind of mistake again because not only will it damage you, it'll make you feel like a charlatan. And we can move forward and forgive ourselves and our mistakes of the past by making sure we don't repeat those mistakes. And in this episode where I think that Odo, you know, he is actually seen in a nice period of growth is that he's trying to atone for what happened Every single day, he walks the promenade and tries to maintain law and order. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. You can't handle the Shabam. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, The Ascent. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. You want to know my dark secret? My grandfather was the software automatic mouth on a Commodore 64. But let's keep this between us. I mean, don't put it on the internet or anything. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. 
It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.